Well, there seems to be two ways to deliver an Easter message. The English writer C.S. Lewis suggests that one is direct. You hit someone over the head with a Bible and share a lot of scriptures. How would that probably land, huh? Or, Lewis suggests, depicting Christian truths in a context that's not explicitly Christian, like a cartoon. Sixteen years ago, a cartoonist by the name of Johnny Hart died on Easter weekend of a stroke. At one point, it's reported that his comic strips, B.C. and Wizard of Id, was read by over a hundred million people. I was reminded the story of Johnny Hart this week by an email that came from Breakpoint uh, Ministry, and I thought it was really helpful. Hart had several comics that he wrote about Easter, and suddenly he would communicate the hope of the resurrection. And so I thought it would be appropriate if we looked at one of those uh, comics, and if you're in the back, I'm sorry you can't read this, so I'll read it for you. This is one of the Easter ones that Johnny Hart wrote. It said, do you know Pontius Pilate wrote, Jesus, the King of the Jews on the cross at Calvary. And the priest got really mad. So what did he do? He said, what I have written, I have written. And the guy responds, I bet Shakespeare would kill for a line like that. <laughs> Hart goes on to say, look, Jake, a note. These are the two ants right here. They're looking at the cross. Look, Jake, a note. And so Jake walks up the cross and he walks over there and Jake reads the note. Nobody can read that. Jake comes down and says, what does it say? And Jake says, it says to be continued. There's a Dallas fabulous pastor by the name of Dr. Tony Evans. And he said, when Jesus said what Jesus didn't say, what Jesus didn't say, Dr. Evans says, is Jesus said, didn't say, I am finished. He said, it was finished. And he was just getting started changing people's lives. And many of us in this room, our lives have been changed because it's all true. It's all true. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. We're going to look at the fact that it's all true because what we believe is anchored in something that really happened. Something that really happened. That's opposed to what simply being what I believe. People believe in a lot of different things. People believe in a lie. People believe in a myth. They believe in a fable. And we'll spend some time unpacking what does it mean to the fact that these events really happened and wrestling with that because it's all true. It's also all true in this regards. Excuse me. It's also true in this regards that we are, our resurrection is anchored and linked with Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection and our resurrection are, are linked together and they go together and we'll take a look at some examples of that, what it means that if it weren't true, what would be the consequences for that? If you don't know much about the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, know this, the person who wrote this was trained and schooled by the brightest and sharpest of his day. He was a sharp guy. And before he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he made it his personal mission. We're talking about Paul now. He made it his personal mission to arrest, torment, assault, and persecute Christians. Then, plot twist. That guy became a new guy. And he became a Christian. No one saw it coming. If you want to read more about that, you can read that in Acts chapter 
9. I want to invite you to uh, open up a pew Bible. They're right in the front of your pews there uh, to page 990. I'm going to be reading a number of verses here, and it may be helpful to you to uh, follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on page 990. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace that was with me whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. But if, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we who are then we who are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ... No, but Christ. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's all true. It's all true because the resurrection is anchored in what really happened. In verse 4, Paul writes this, his resurrection still affects us today. The idea that he was risen from the dead there's a tweak there, and the tweak is used in the tense of the verb. You may say, why is that important? It's important for this reason. It indicates that his raising from, risen from the dead affects us today. And here we are. We're sitting in a church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in 2023, talking about Jesus who is alive, not uh, having a memorial service for a dead Jewish rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago. No one predicted Jesus' resurrection or thought he would pull it off. None of the disciples or the women at the tomb had a countdown clock 
and looked at each other's watches and said, now, is he going to rise from the dead at 7 o'clock Central Time, or was that Rocky Mountain Time? Nobody. On the back of your bulletins, there is a listing, I found it really helpful, about the diverse resurrection appearances of Jesus. You may want to dig into this website, Cold Case Christianity, by an author by the name of Jane Warner Wallace. It lists all of the resurrection sightings, the various ways that he appeared. And if you just look at it cumulatively, you may want to say, what's the point? The point is this. They were eyewitnesses who were there. Here's what Peter said, one of Jesus' good friends from 1 Peter 1.16. He said, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Another of his good friends, John, wrote this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hand concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. Of the 12 disciples, if you throw out Judas, 11 of them suffered violently for their faith in Christ. They were martyred, they were whipped, the church history tells us that the Apostle John, who was put on the island of Patmos, was put in a, a pot of boiling oil. And so Lee Strobel, uh, a guy who didn't grow up as a Christian, wrote in The Case for Christ, he wrote these words, I found it helpful. People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. While most people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, the disciples were in a position to know without a doubt whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. They claimed that they saw him, that they talked with him, and that they ate with him. And if they weren't absolutely certain, they wouldn't have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for proclaiming that the resurrection had happened. What's your point, Pastor? Here's the point. The disciples were in the unique position of knowing if they had truly encountered the risen Christ or not, if they were part of a conspiracy that they, didn't, that they knew wasn't true, then they submitted to their own horrific deaths for a known lie. The more rational explanation is they really witnessed and it was really true. The second thing, this came from a, a Nashville pastor, Scott Sauls, tells about it, what was really true is the characters of those who were recorded. The Gospels cite how Mary Magdalene similarly and shockingly staked her life on the testimony of seeing Jesus risen from the dead. The Gospels use her as an example. We saw that in the opening video. Mary was a former demonic, and she was more likely a prostitute, and she was the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. No one in that day would have taken seriously the t testimony of a woman like her. The Jewish historian Josephus said a woman's testimony would not even be admissible in a court of law. And Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, mocked and discredited Mary Magdalene as a hysterical female, deluded by sorceries. But the gospel writers, if they're trying to make a tight case for an appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, why would they have inserted someone of her reputation as a first eyewitness? There's only one reason. There's only one reason. What was true? She was an eyewitness to what was true. And then there's this subtle, kind of easy to quick pass over. That's in verse 7 that I read to you. There were over 500 witnesses, and Paul 
in a sense says, go ask them. Some have fallen asleep, but there are many hundreds that are still alive. Go ask them. Do you hear the invitation? If you're doubting, go ask them. They were there. It's all true. Alfred Akeley wrote a song in 1933 called I Sing a Risen Savior. Maybe you've sung it before at past Easter's. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, he lives with me today. He walks with me and talks with me and all life's narrow way. And I forgot the next verses because I didn't write them down. But then it goes, and near the end it says, we, You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Wouldn't it be great if he would have said, taken verse 7 and said, You ask me how I know he lives. Ask the 500. That's a good, really, really good place to start. <laughs> yeah. It didn't register. It didn't land on their radar. No one anticipated Jesus rising from the dead, including his own mom, the Virgin Mary. I mean, she was there at the very beginning. She was at the cross, and the Gospels don't tell us. She said, don't worry, he's going to blow open the tomb. The disciples, it wasn't just Thomas who was wondering if it was true. It wasn't just Thomas. Doubting Thomas, throw him under the bus, okay? But it was the women at the tomb, right? They were, they were going to, they asked each other as they walked up to the tomb, they said, who's going to roll away the stone? And then there's Cleopas and the other disciple who walked down the road to Emmaus. How do we know it's true? This, because of the eyewitnesses. Because of the eyewitnesses. Something like that ever happened before? Well, this illustration has been really powerful to me, and I want to share it with you. There's a man by the name of Chuck Colson, who was a U.S. Marine and a trained lawyer. And at 38 years old, he came on the political scene during the Nixon administration. And Chuck Colson's life was changed by Christ. He wasn't always a Christ follower, though. In fact, during those late 60s and early 70s, Chuck Colson became one of Richard Nixon's hatchet men. He was known at that time as doing whatever needed to be taken, whatever needed to be done, done to advance the cause of the Nixon administration. In fact, he famously said that he would trample on his own grandma's grave for Nixon and showed that he, mean, he meant what he said. How would you like to invite him to your Easter meal? Well, fast forward a little bit. And one of the things that split our country in the early 70s was the Watergate scandal. And Chuck Colson was right in the middle of that. He did not know Christ at the time and how he acted. And as he was being called to court for his actions that break in, he came to Christ in a radical way. He came to Christ. And before you get cynical about that and say, well, he probably just didn't want to serve jail time. After he served his time in seven months, for nearly 40 years, every Easter, every Easter Sunday, he would go to prison and spend time with prisoners and preach. Well, this is what Chuck Colson said after he came to know Christ and had a chance to uh, study the scriptures. Chuck Colson said this, 
I know the resurrection is a fact. And the Watergate incident proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. They never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, was tortured, was stoned, was put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it was true, if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and Colson was one of them. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Wow, what a good illustration. It's true. Jesus literally rose from the dead. There were witnesses that saw it. You could test them. It's all true. The resurrections are anchored in what really happened. You'll notice what I said, the resurrections. His resurrection, your resurrection, they're linked together. You might be sitting here thinking this morning, what happens if it's not true? Well, step back for just a second in what was under the understanding of death and resurrection at the time in the Greco-Roman world. There were two extremes, if you will. The background of some people believe that after death, life was extinguished. Life now became a permanent shadow. There was insubstantial existence, insub insubstantial existence in the under underworld. It didn't matter. Think Grim Reaper, think Boogeyman, think explosion of horror genre on Netflix and Tubi and the like. That was one extreme. On the other extreme, what happens if it's not true, like there's no resurrection at that time? There was an unknown. We just don't know. And those who were educated would often laugh at the next world. Think Hallmark cards. Think of the idea that everyone turns into an angel. So Paul, in, on verse 12, says, but if, but if Christ wouldn't have risen from the dead, if it's not true, what does that mean? And he, he just kind of lists out verse after verse after verse, like bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. If it's not cr true of the resurrection and Jesus is still dead, then he's not worth praising. Then put a picture of Jesus on the wall or maybe like a Hall of Fame monument, but don't sacrifice for him and don't serve him. And what about church? Now, life won't get better. Life is just a chance. In verse 32, we didn't read this verse, but listen, if it's not true, if it's not true, if it's not true, Paul endorses in verse 32, total narcissism. Like, embrace it. Why not just live for yourself? If it's not true and there's no risen Christ, sins aren't forgiven. And the, the whole point of life is don't get caught and regarding justice and atrocities for justices, they're, they're, so what? If it's not true that there is, Christ did not rise from the dead, then our loved ones are gone and they have perished. If it's not true and there is not a risen Christ, then preachers and missionaries and ministry directors and Christian musicians are to be pitied and mocked. And it would be totally appropriate if, if it wasn't true for people to drive by the church and go, you're wasting your time. Herodias was a Greek and Roman famous historian 
who lived in 400 BC. He told of a custom of the Egyptians. In social meetings among the rich, when the banquet was ended, a servant carried around to several guests a small coffin in which was painted a wooden image of a corpse that looked very lifelike. As the servant showed the coffin to each one, the servant would say, gaze here and drink and be merry, for when you die, such it will be. If Christ is not risen, if it's not true that Christ is not risen, then Jesus' ability to forgive sins or justification or regeneration or change, there's no hope. There's absolutely no hope. But it is true. Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, verse 4 says this, God himself, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain and all these things are gone forever because it's all true. Christ is risen from the dead. And Paul says in verse 20, but Christ, oh, 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 but Christ, but Christ, Christ is risen from the dead. And then Paul drops this metaphor or a, a hint back to the Old Testament. He calls Christ the first fruits. It was a reference to an Old Testament offering in Leviticus chapter 23. First fruits was when the harvest was over and before grain could be sold in the market and it was used by the people. The first fruits had to be offered to God. Notice that the first fruits are a bloodless offering. Why? Because the atonement and the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, had already taken place. He took place on the cross because the sacrifices are completed. And the writer for the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says this, he did not enter by means of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood through obtaining eternal redemption. So let me make the connection. Here's the connection between the first fruits and us. First fruits come as the first of all humanity. Jesus was the first of all those who had been resurrected, and we will follow him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, 5, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus anticipates our resurrection because we will be raised with a body like his. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection in the sense that he's our entrance fee to resurrection. Jesus paid the admission to our resurrection. Verse 47 says Jesus calls him the second, or Paul calls him the second Adam. Know this, Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection, yet he was not the first one raised from the dead. The Bible tells us of different People rising from the dead in 1 Kings 17. A widow's son in the days of Elijah and Jesus' own ministry. He rose Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And then this classic one that's used in all preaching classes and seminaries, Eutychus, Acts 20. He, he fell out of a window because the sermon was too long. So the professors say, take note. That's why I have my watch up here. Each of those three people were resuscitated from death, but none of them were resurrected. Each of them was raised in the same body they died in, and they eventually died again. Resurrection isn't just about living again. It's living again in a new body. 
The new body is based on our old body, but it's perfectly suited for life in eternity. Jesus wasn't the first one brought back from the dead, but he was the first one resurrected. And if you trust Christ, you will be resurrected as well too. Yeah. Jesus provides the entrance fee. Have you ever had someone pay the entrance fee for you? I have. Uh, in 2005, I graduated from seminary, from Bethel Seminary, and it had been a long journey. It had been five years. And so I wanted to uh, treat my family. They had put up with their dad having a nose in a book for five years. And so um, we decided to go to Florida, take my family to Florida during the winter in January. Does that sound good or what? Yeah. And so someone from the church had heard that I was um, going to take our family to Disney World and Epcot. And uh, my friend said, call Joel. Joel was uh, in my first confirmation class I ever taught before. And I watched Joel grow athletically, and he graduated and then took his grad school down in Florida. And for some reason, he didn't want to move back to Fargo, North Dakota. I don't know. I don't know why. So this uh, parent said, why don't you call Joel? He works for the Disney company. Really? And Joel can get you in to Epcot for free, at least three tickets. So I called Joel. We set up a time. I hadn't seen him for a number of years, and he greeted us outside. I remember he was wearing a golf shirt and khakis, and he looked really sharp. He said, hi, Kirk, and he embraced me, and he embraced Julie, and he hadn't seen the kids for a while. And he goes, you know, I did the classic. Man, you guys have grown. He said, and then he turned to me, and he said, follow me. And Joel, being an employee of Disney, got three tickets to Epcot. And I remember walking by. He said, just follow me. You don't have to say anything. And I remember walking by, all these people looking at me, and I was thinking, I'm with him. I'm with him. I just kind of did this kind of deal. And I'm on the other side, and I'm going, cha-ching. Didn't have to fork that out. Entrance fee. Christ is the first fruits. There's not a hard stop at the end of this very important passage of Scripture. There's not a hard stop, but there is a hard therefore. It ends, 1 Corinthians 15 ends with this very famous verse that says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There was something I learned this week as I was studying, getting ready for this message that the English translation doesn't quite pick up the power of what's there. Instead of the word brothers and sisters, the actual word is beloved. Beloved. How do you become a beloved that he's talking about? Well, here's an Easter quiz. I love to give this quiz often. True, false. Raise your hand. All people are loved by God. If you think that's true, raise your hand. Okay? Listen. All people are children of God. False. Once again, all people are loved by God. Forgiven people become children of God. There's a difference there. Pastor Brian referred to this in his opening prayer. Romans chapter verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. In my devotions this week, I read this. While we were still liars and thieves and adulterers and murderers and addicts, 
Christ died for us. While we were still grumblers and gossipers and idolaters and embezzlers and hypocrites, Christ died for us. While we were still slanderers and traitors and infidels and atheists and agnostics, Christ died for us. While we were still narcissists, cynics, consumerists, coveters, and fornicators, Christ died for us. Christ died for all sinners. No exceptions to prove God's love for us. No exceptions. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even will live even though they die. The gospel is not come get your act together. The gospel is not get your act together and then come to God. The gospel is come to him and he will change you. When Jesus died on the cross, his arms were open wide. He, he had his arms nailed for you and for me. He, he died this way as, and, and the cross goes up and down as well too. That he represented a holy God and yet he never sinned. And his invitation is for all is come and follow me. You may never have asked Christ into your heart. Why not on Easter Sunday? Why not on Easter Sunday? Make Christ your Savior and Lord because it's all true. It's all true. Our resurrection and his resurrection are linked together. And you will live forever. Some of you may say, this is a lot for me to take in. I want to think about this some more. I, I can get that. I want to encourage you to look at the back of the bulletin, take a look at that Cold Case Christianity, or if you want to pick up one of the many books that we have, at the Welcome Center, you do that. But if you've never prayed and asked Christ into your heart, on Easter Sunday would be a beautiful time to do that. And you can pray a simple prayer to be resurrected with Christ. You will live forever. Where you live, that's your choice. But I want to give you that opportunity. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads. You can pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive my sins. Wash me and make me new. Come into my heart. Live in me by your Holy Spirit. Give me a hunger for your word. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, then I want to ask you to just lift up your head and let's make eye contact. On the full authority of the word of God, I welcome you, those who have prayed, into the family of God. It's going to be really important, like super important, for you to tell a friend. Maybe the person that you came with. Maybe someone in your family. Maybe you reach out and email someone. Tell them what you did. Secondly, what's super important is find a Bible. If you don't have one, go to the Welcome Center. We'll give you a Bible free of charge. Thirdly, if it's not here, you're welcome here. But if it's not here, find a church that teaches about the Bible and lifts up Jesus and makes him really, really clear. You're going to need others to walk with you. Heavenly Father, it's all true. You rose from the dead. People saw you. And because of that, you are the first fruits. You are the entrance fee that we have to come before the Father. 
I thank you that we can worship you, we can glorify you, we can bask in this wonder that it's all true. And someday you will come back and receive us or call us home. We can't wait. Amen and amen.